Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, the author of A Lenape Among the Quakers, Don Marsh. Don Marsh, author of A Lenape Among the Quakers, The Life of Hannah Freeman. For people who don't know, what's a Lenape? Uh, the Delaware Indians. Lenape is the original name for the Delaware Indians. They refer to themselves Lenape historically, but that was the name they called themselves, and it means the people or people. Where did they live? Uh, along the Delaware River Valley, uh, parts of New York, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania. How big were they? How big? I mean, how many numbers? Yeah. Uh, it depends. I mean, at time of contact, it's hard to tell because there were so many epidemic diseases that came and went that there aren't any really good numbers for it now. What so. interested you about them that you'd want to write a book? Uh, well, it wasn't the Delawares per se that got me. It was uh, it was Hannah Freeman that got me first, um, and it actually started with one document. Um, I was in a PhD program at the University of California, and uh, I had done uh, my master's degree at cross-trained in archaeology and history. And with that one, I had taken a look at the Paxton Massacre uh, and interpreted how archaeological documents might change the way a historian, I'm a historian, interprets the, uh, um, the event. And so I was very engaged with that and got my master's degree from that. Um, and I was, actually, <laughs> I was actually beginning to work on taking a look at the idea of genocide and Native Americans in U.S. history, which was a very difficult subject to work on. And my advisor, Sharon Salinger, um, she's actually a historian on Pennsylvania, the colonial era, and she was the advisor of my dissertation. She brought to notice uh, a document that had been uh, published in the Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania Magazine of History and Biography. And it's a section, a lot of times historical journals will have a section in the back where they will publish and maybe just have a little annotation on some interesting primary sources that a local archive or library might have just to put them out there. And one of them was this document that's called The Examination of Indian Hannah. And she said, you should take a look at this. And I don't know why she said that, but it really um, got me. It, her story, a Native American woman's story in the 18th century, coming from her voice was rare, extremely rare. So it wasn't the Delawares as a group that got me. It was Hannah Freeman that got me. How did that document come to exist? Um, well, it was, it was at the Chester County Historical Society, um, and um, I'm going to forget his name now. It was another scholar that wrote, uh, had written a little bit. He was an archaeologist, uh, and he had written about the Delawares in the area. And so it was just, he'd done work at the, hist I don't know why they exactly picked it, but it seemed like something interesting that the public would like to read about. Um, but his conclusion basically was that there, you know, it was, 
she was a local legend, sort of a myth, and, and there wasn't really much else you could tell about her. As you say, regional scholars dismiss Hannah Freeman's story as more myth than history. Uh-huh. Marshall Becker, that's his name. <laughs> but, but you wanted to pursue it? Yes, yes, because, I mean, I specialize in Native American history. Um, and I also specialized in the, area, the, the time period of contact uh, and the impact of colonization on various Native American groups. Um, so I was interested in it because I'd also done some work as a public historian, worked in museums, uh, and the idea was that the way Native American history often gets interpreted is very problematic. It's according to a non-indigenous perspective or um, as you might see it in a lot of public spaces or museums, it's very out of date. It doesn't, uh, it's usually looking at, at Indians as antiquated or static or gone, you know. So, so Indian Hannah is not alone in being mythologized. There are a lot of places all over the country that do similar things that mythologize Native Americans. What's in this original document that got you started on this? You, you describe it as a 10-year project. Uh, <laughs> well, the, the original document, the first one I saw was the examination of Indian Hannah. And it was basically, um, it took a while to figure out exactly what it was, but it was a deposition, basically. They were going to open the first poorhouse in the region. Um, and basically the idea is that when they opened a poorhouse, you had to to establish that the person that was going to be admitted uh, was a member or had lived in the township because it was funded by taxpayers. And so they did it designated by township. And so basically, she was most likely brought in or interviewed um, by, by uh, one of the uh, officials um, of the township in the county to, to discuss. I, you know, we don't know exactly what happened. I mean, that's partly where the the imagination has to take hold, but it's written as though it, somebody were asking her a series of questions. And also the original document has, you know, scratched out parts and it's reorganized in a sort of chronological format. But basically, she was being asked to substantiate her life in that township so that they could justify, you know, putting her into a poorhouse at the taxpayer's expense. So it was a series of questions. How old was she at the time? Uh, she was probably in her 70s, and she was, uh, she was arthritic, had rheumatoid arthritis, according to some of the other documents. So she was an older woman. Did she want to go into the poorhouse? That's a good question. Um, we don't know. We don't know. Um, the, the interesting thing about Hannah Freeman is up until the time that they admitted her into the poorhouse, she had a very personal and intimate relationship with her Quaker neighbors. And she'd always lived in this area. She had worked for different people. She had moved freely across the lands. Um, they had taken care of her. But when she got to be older, and apparently because of the arthritis, she was unable to travel around to work. And so <clears throat> they went from this very personal relationship to a very institutionalized relationship, which is the hard part to understand. I can't imagine that she would have wanted to be institutionalized rather than living w among people she knew. You have a part in the back of the book where uh, each of her neighbors agree to take care of her for a certain number of days or provide a certain amount mm -hmm. of money. Yeah, that's a document that's called, you know, the, the uh, Chester County Historical Society calls it the Kindness Extended, giving it a, um, a name. And that was a document that was actually, uh, I, was, I was able to look at after I'd seen the examination after I'd come to Chester County for my first uh, research into the topic. And the document, I believe, was originally inside a family Bible 
So it was a private document, but the um, archive had it. And this was basically done the summer before um, the examination was done. So it was, it was pulled together the summer before, um, before the official document where they were establishing her ability to be entered into the poorhouse. And this document basically, uh, what it turned out to be was a group of 34 Quaker men um, who gathered together and signed basically an informal contract. It has very formal uh, appearance to it um, and they take note that uh, Hannah Freeman is the last of her kind which is one of the things I challenge a lot um, but they wanted to take care of her because she was ill and she was unable to take care of herself and she was unable to get around from place to place um, and so that they were going to sign the document some of them were going to provide room and board others were going to provide money for her you know, sometimes so many weeks at a time, sometimes so many shillings would be provided, you know, until the time that the poorhouse was built. And they basically had a treasurer appointed who oversaw the funds. They planned for her funeral in the event of her death. If there was money left over, they would return it. So it was a, it was a very formal looking document kept informally and not a part of the public record. Why did they think she was the last of her kind? Because they wanted to. <laughs> I mean, that's... There's, a, there's another author, um, uh, Jeannie O'Brien, who wrote a book called Firsting and Lasting. And it's a phenomenon you see a lot, especially in the eastern United States, um, where there is a history of Native Americans. Native Americans heavily populated the Atlantic seaboard and uh, eastern woodlands. And so as colonial towns came into areas and populated, um, there would be most often... Indians like the, the Delaware, the Lenapes, the Delaware at some point found that they could not live successfully, even though lands had been guaranteed to them, even though they had treaties. At some point, leaders would make a choice. It's like, we cannot continue to live here. And so the, they would leave. They would ultimately leave. This is a story that happens over and over um, in US, U.S. history. Um, and in some of those cases, what it is, it's not, there is no... <clears throat> big Delaware decision to leave the area. There are groups, there are clans, there are families, there are individuals. And sometimes what you had was groups of people decided, no, we're going to stay here. This is our homeland, we're not going to go. Sometimes there were formal, uh, more formal ideas of people being placekeepers, that they were going to stay there because it was Delaware land and, and hold it. Um, so she was one of the, her family and others like her stayed, but she wasn't the last of her kind because even the newspapers will remark, I think it's 20 years later, there's another last of her kind not too far. So there are still Delaware people that live in this area today, so they didn't all go away and disappear. Did she own the land that she was living on? There's ah, another good word, ownership, right? Um, Native Americans in the colonial era um, had different concepts and ideas about what gave them the right to occupy a place. And so for the Delawares, before any Europeans came along, there were different groups of Native Americans, you know, Delawares, Iroquois, you know, all groups, and they had borders and they had boundaries and they understood their own territories, but they were, they understood their ownership by their history on the land not by um, Europeans will come along and their very concept of ownership is by marking a landscape and mapping it and dividing it, drawing lines, putting up fences, whatever they do. And that when Europeans came to the uh, North America and set up the colonies, 
they were very much into the idea of fee simple ownership. One person could purchase a piece of land and own it. Well, Native Americans didn't have that conception because they lived communally. You might have clans, you know, or, or different family groups that occupied a place, but they knew what belonged to them, right? So it's, it's a very different concept that came into conflict all the way into the 20th century. So did William Penn buy land, yes. in his mind, buy it from the Indians? Right. That's what, uh, <coughs> again, part of, the, part of the problematic exceptionalism of William Penn's colonial policies, he's always framed as being, um, a, you know, the peaceable kingdom idea, that somehow uh, the relationship between William Penn and the Native Americans that lived in what would become the colony of Pennsylvania was exceptional and different. And he was, in some aspects, very different in the fact that because of his Quaker background, right, he did not want to have to engage in warfare to control colonial lands. And up to that point, if you look in New England or if you look into the southeast, the Chesapeake area, the English colonizers basically had to wage war, constant warfare, and, and force Indians off of land. That's, that's how it was happening. So his idea was to avoid this. And what he thought was the best way to avoid it was to purchase the lands, which is what he had his agents do, begin purchasing lands through a series of treaties. So that, that, and he believed he'd bought it all. I want you to read, I want to read this from your book. You say, William Penn and his colonial enterprise are presented as unique and exceptional in large part because of his relations with the Lenapes. As historian James O'Neill Spady stated, there is no evidence that the Lenape praised the benevolence or justice of William Penn's policy, and in fact, if given the chance, they might offer a story of bitterness, disappointment, and loss. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, ultimately, I call it benevolent colonialism, because even though, I mean, Pennsylvania was still a very violent place, and even though William Penn and his heirs and representatives did not declare war on the Delawares until the 1750s, um, even though I call it benevolent colonialism because they were dispossessed, right? And, and it was illegally. Sometimes it was legally and other times it was illegally, but either way, they forced people to leave their homes. They had no choice. What did they give them in exchange for their land? What did the treaties have in them? Uh, usually the treaties involved material goods and sometimes money. I mean, very much a payment for the lands. Uh, Chicochenikan, who is the leader, the sachem of the band that uh, Hannah Freeman was born into, uh, he was paid so much land um, in order to, uh, his treaty basically uh, was, was cut down to size so that it was one mile on either side of the Brandywine River from one point on the north to one point on the south. And then he was supposed to be paid for the amounts that he had seceded to the Pennsylvania government, which they failed to do until I think it was like 25 years later when he kept going back and demanding to get paid. But ultimately, even that, even though he had a treaty, even though um, uh, Logan and the other agents of the Pennsylvania government recognized that by treaty they had the right to stay there, um, ultimately they were forced from the land. And so the leader, the sachem, at some point makes a decision that we have to go and they go, and then some people stay behind. Did all the Lenapes, when they went, go to the same place? No, no. I mean, you can look at uh, probably between 1730 and 1750 is when uh, what begins the uh, diaspora of the Delawares out of their ancestral homelands, their historic homelands, where they had been for hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, 
And so they began to move. And again, like I said, some families, some groups, the, their lead, they, the, the Delawares by their very organization were a very dispersed group of people. There was no big Delaware nation, right? And so it was by leaders of different clans um, and different family groups. So some went north up the Susquehanna River towards like Shimokan, up that way, but eventually they're going to be forced out of there. Others went directly into western Pennsylvania. Um, even by the 1730s and 40s, there are Delawares in east, what is now eastern Ohio. And again, they, they just divide, and they did. They kept moving around. The majority will go uh, into Ohio and settle in different parts of Ohio into Indiana. And then by that time, you're in the 1830s, and that's when the great, the new United States has a national push to remove Indians east of the Mississippi. And they'll end up, eventually, the Delawares are in Canada, the Delawares are in uh, Oklahoma, um, there are unrecognized groups in New Jersey, uh, and of course there's Delaware people all over the place. So, Is there one concentration of Delawares or Lenapis today? In, in the United States, we have two federally recognized um, nations of Delaware people, and they're both in Oklahoma. One is in eastern Oklahoma and one is western Oklahoma, and that had to do with where they settled after the Jacksonian era removals. Why did Hannah Freeman stay behind? That's a good question. Um, it's one I've thought of, uh, I, I think, one of the possibilities is that um, I think that there were families who remained as placeholders, that they chose or maybe it was part of their responsibility to stay in a place historically, to hold it, to be there for people who came back, um, to maintain their presence on the place because they understood that in the treaty, William Pett and t said, until the last one is gone from your land, it belongs to you. Uh, the other reason might have just been something as simple as individual choice. You know, in, I mean, just think of our own lives. I mean, I was born in western Pennsylvania. I lived most of my life in California. Why did I leave Pennsylvania? I left for work. I left for opportunity. I left for family. They're doing the same thing. They're making choices because if they're going to stay, I mean, the population of colonial Pennsylvania was so fast that they were going to have to change. They were going to have to learn to live within this colonial population, find new ways of making a living. Um, even shad fishing, that was one of the major reasons that many of the Lenapis had to go. Shad fishing was a major source of their food. And so as the col colonial people came in and set up dams on the river, these shad could no longer swim up the river, and so it cut off a major food source. Uh, this, in your book, you say between December 1681 and December 1682, 23 ships burdened with cargo and passengers made their landings along the Delaware River. Each ship carried approximately 2,000 passengers. So that's 46,000 roughly immigrants in one year. Mm -hmm. Yes, it is. And it's rapid. I mean, it's really rapid because Pennsylvania, I mean, uh, other another author, uh, uh, it's the best poor man's country. I mean, this became the breadbasket of the colonies. It was a very successful place for people to live. Uh, again, all you have to do is compare it to the other major uh, English colonial settlements in the Chesapeake. That's a killing zone. I mean, so many people that got off those boats, the majority in the first decades don't live because of the, the you know, bad water, because of the uh, temperatures, uh, diseases, and it's hard to get things going. In New England, it's very similar, but, you know, Pennsylvania was just a place where, you know, you could go out and begin growing and farming, and it was very successful early on. And also it was, you know, again, in part, um, 
part of the, the draw of Pennsylvania was the tolerance. Um, the idea that Penn was, you know, not going to limit it to who could settle there. It wasn't just a Quaker colony. And so you had a great influx of German settlers and Irish settlers and then the Scots-Irish settlers. So it was, it was a very abundant and sex successful colony. So it went smoothly because of William Penn in particular? Well, his policies. I mean, he did have a very systematic approach to it in place, even though he was actually here such a short time. Um, I think it was two years the first time and then came back. And, uh, but he had agents and he had a system set up and he had some very good uh, uh, representatives that managed land uh, and, was able, and were able to, to do that. So it was a very successful colonial policy. You say Hannah Freeman was born around 1720 to 1730 somewhere. What right. was Pennsylvania or Chester County like when she was born there? Well, that's, that's uh, partly in kind... In, in, in having to construct a life around her that I didn't know a lot, which was always a big challenge, I had to put myself in Pennsylvania at that time. And so I had to use a lot of other sources. And um, literally, when she was born, you know, around the time that she was born, um, that's why in the one part I talk about what her mothers and her grandmothers, the kind of lives they had lived, was going to be very different. So she was already living in a world where colonial exchange, material culture uh, had, had occurred within her society. She was also in, in a Lenape culture that part of the economy of both the settlers and the Native Americans, they relied on each other for exchange in foods and goods and services. Um, so there was already a well-established colonial relationship. So for her, she would have always seen colonial settlers around her. They weren't new or strange to her. You know, they weren't the newcomers, but the, through her very early years, that's when that greatest growth of population is just going on around her. What would her life have been like? I mean, what kind of building did she live in? What did she wear? What did they eat? Well, um, I, I'd say that when she was a young girl, um, most of the Native Americans, most of the Delawares living in that area were living in cabins. You hear it described over and over again that they're living in cabins. Um, and then there's also, they lived in traditional um, housing that's made out of wood frames and trees. It's commonly, it's an Algonquian word, a wigwam. Um, so some people lived also in traditional uh, housing. They lived always along uh, dra drainages um, to the main rivers because, again, they were farmers first and foremost. Um, they were not a warrior culture or society or anything like that. Um, and they planted corn, they planted, uh, they had orchards. So they lived through horticulture, which women were in charge of. That was their, their role in their domain. So, um, so they probably lived within a sort of seasonal living, um, which she does all her life. She moves closer to some parts of the land during a time when they would have planted corn and harvested certain, certain things. When it's time for the shad fishing, they would have moved certain spots upriver to be able to take advantage of that and drive fish. So she lived very much um, within an agricultural world. Um, and I'd say it's also probably her life was very much in a women-centered world because she, women worked in groups. Um, the information and knowledge they had, they shared with one another. So as a young girl, she wouldn't have been taught by just her mother or her grandmother. She would have learned things from a group of women as well. Um, she's probably wearing clothing uh, that has European, uh, they were trading in cloth, um, so she would have been wearing things that were partially of European or colonial make and part of, you know, traditional clothing that she had from the Delaware. 
Was there a, oh, can you explain the Delaware and Lenape difference? Because Delaware is a European. Yes, word, yes. It was, the, it was a name that was a, given to them often, as is the case with the common names known about Native Americans. It's not the name they call themselves. So the, the, they were referred to the Delaware early on because of their location on the river, and the river was given that name because of um, uh, his Delaware is his last name. I can't remember his royal title was, but it was an English name. And because that's where the main population lived, that's what they were called. And they get, they get referred to that by Europeans and, and settlers uh, occasionally. And then by the time you get to the 1740s and 50s, it's almost exclusively that others are calling them the Delawares and their leaders are referring to themselves as Delawares. So Lenape is the word in their language and Delaware is the word that English colonizers assigned. How were they led? Who were, was there a chief of the tribe? And they had sachems. Um, again, they were divided by clans, uh, the wolf, turkey, and turtle clan, and those clans still exist today. And probably the most uh, important social organization for the Delawares um, is the clan. Um, and then within that, usually what they were organized by were groups of settlements that were led by several sachems. Um, so there was no one particular leader. Um, there was like the, 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 the one among equals. Sometimes it was a spokesperson. And a lot of this would uh, uh, change or get impacted because for Europeans, when they encounter Native Americans, they come from their own worldview, where there has to be one leader. They come from a very hierarchical system. So there has to be one leader. So ultimately, they begin to seek out one or two leaders to speak to. But usually the, the Delawares, when they were still east of the um, Appalachian Mountains, they were organized into small clusters of settlements and towns that were scattered around. There was no one big town center or one main leader, but multiple sachems. And you mentioned the role of women. What was the role of men in the tribe? Um, well, again, the, the I'd say that for the men, their roles were um, hunting, right, and fishing. Um, they're also early on when the uh, when the uh, Del Delawares first encountered the English, the Dutch, the Swedes, and then the English. The, the Delaware uh, people were very much into trade, um, so they provided, the men provided um, guides. They began to be interpreters. Um, they were facilitating and mediating relationships between other Indian tribes um, and the Dutch or the Swedes. So they did the traditional things of hunting. They were involved in political work, ceremonial work, and then the exchange between colonial settlers. But again, it's, they're not rigid roles. So it's just like any farming community. Uh, when it's time to harvest something, you know, people work together and exchange roles, but women were in charge of designating when things got planted, when things got harvested, where the fields were going to go. So it's very complementary kind of relationship between men and women. Did they mostly stay put or, or move around a lot? Not, no. Uh, they stayed. They were very settlement, town-oriented, village-oriented. And the movements they did do would be, like I said, seasonally, um, like for planting corn. But these aren't very... These aren't places that aren't very far apart, you know, s several miles. Like they might go upriver here. But they were semi-permanent in the sense that, you know, when it was time to do the shad fishing, they went to their usual fishing spots and they put up a summer camp there and do that. And it was time to plant corn, then they'd move back. So they were 
semi-permanent in the sense they might have had, well, it's kind of like in the sense that you have a summer home and a winter home that people go to. You mentioned uh, Shimokin uh, mm -hmm. as uh, being the largest town that they had. What would that have been like if you went and visited Shimokin and walked down the <laughs> main street? Well, it's funny. Uh, one of the, I was, I'm very much uh, a person who has to see the landscape to be able to do the history. And so one of the earliest trips, I, I uh, drove up to Sunbury, which is the site of where Shimokin is today. Oh, not the town that is now called Shimokin. No. Sunbury is the location of where the historic Shimokin is. So I walked along there. Tried, I tried to imagine that. There's the, the, the vision of the rivers, the branches of the river there. There's an island in the middle. And it's hard to do that. Um, it's hard to walk into a landscape and try to peel away the layers Right, so you can see what it might have looked like. I do that a lot. That's why I love Philadelphia anyway, because you can still see this colonial city. You go to other cities. I'm sorry, Boston, but you can't see it there. Um, go to New Orleans, and it's still a colonial city. So, but, um, so Sunbury, it was because it, at its confluence of two rivers, um, it was also the major intersection of a number of very, very old um, Indian trails that traveled you know, to upstate New York to down into the southern, the modern southern states. So it was a, a terminus of a lot of different points of um, river travel, uh, warrior travel, um, and, and just a place uh, where a lot of different uh, people met. And then during the colonial era, as what's happening anytime from 1700 to, you know, the 1750s is there are a lot of people on the move. There's a lot of dislocation. Uh, people like the Delawares are moving. They're trying to find new places to live. You also have colonial settlements that are moving, traders that are moving through, government officials, people mapping. So it became a place of communication. It's a crossroads in a sense. Um, there were times that some accounts of that place sound absolutely frightening, you know, because uh, of violence, because of competing interests, because of crime. Other times it seemed like the last best hope of a place for people to go, you know, to find to get, inf get information or decide where they're going to go next. So it was a political center, a trade center, um, but it was like any other place. It was, had moments of conflict and violence, too. Have there been archaeological digs there looking for settlements? I don't know. You know, I can't imagine that there haven't been around there because of the rivers, but I don't know necessarily. Actually, now that I think about it, the fort that was there later on, there were excavations. I think it was Fort Augusta that was built there, but I don't know necessarily of the Indian town. I'm not sure if they did or not. So what did you learn about Hannah Freeman in, in writing it? For, and first of all, her name. It does not sound like a, an Indian name. I know. That was one of those, sound like my dissertation advisor now. What about that name? And, and I had a number of people ask over and over because uh, sometimes you can, you can find what the original name was. I mean, it's obviously, it's an English name. Hannah is a really, really common English name. It's a very common name among the Eng English Quakers in the area. Freeman was tough. You know, I have no idea what her, what her Delaware name or her Lenape name would have been. With the Lenape people, the naming um, is a very complicated thing. Uh, when a child's born, they, they don't name them right away. It takes some time. Um, and also, a person might have multiple names. They might have a name that they are known affectionately within their community. They might have a name that's connected to ceremony um, or something else that occurs. And so the names that people knew her outside of her own family or kin group, um, Hannah could possibly have. 
a Lenape origin because Hana is the word for river or water. It's also Hannah, the English word, so, but I can't, I couldn't say conclusively. And Freeman, um, there's, you know, there, there's the name Freeman that shows up in this area, but they're German immigrants. There's no association between her and even living near German immigrants that that would have been it. And it was also, sometimes it would be spelled with two E's, sometimes with an I and an E. Um, then there was also the designation that you see a lot is that free blacks, the Freeman name was associated with that. So the question was, well then, was she married to? Was she related to? Did she live, live near? I have nothing for that either. So it just, it came up, despite multiple attempts, it came up with, with no answer. So you, you found the one document that, uh, of her giving her oral history, and what other documents did you come up with that, <laughs> that mentioned her? Um, it, well, that, there was, there, the two main documents that get printed at the end of the book Again, the idea is that I use these documents with my students so that they can learn how to do history, how you can actually uncover history. That's why we put those in there. So those two main doc documents, the, the kindness extended, which was the contract, and the examination, which was the testimony to have her put in the poorhouse, those were, those were it. I mean, that was it. I had two documents. You know, historians are kind of fanatic about having a lot. So then I began to... Um, with the great help of the archivists uh, at Chester County Archives and Chester County Historical Society, um, I began to put together the names of the men who had signed the kindness extended and look for documents that they had, right? Because they all knew her and they all saw her. Um, so um, I came up with uh, journal entries where they were delivering um, hay to her. Um, I had other journal entries where she came and she treated uh, people's children for illness. Um, I have other documents where they made note of her. And then you also get into um, newspaper articles that began to appear within, I think the first one is 1824. Within, within a generation after she dies, people start to write about her or talk about her. So there's a series of accounts of Hannah Freeman. The legend and lore stuff starts. But within those are people remembering she did this here, she was there. Um, and then a third uh, collection of sources was very useful is the Albert Cook Meyer collection at the Chester County Historical Society. Albert Cook Meyer was a um, Quaker. Uh, he was a historian. Uh, he lived at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, and he wrote on the Irish Quakers. He, was, uh, um, he collected all kinds of information and wrote about it. And he had in his plans to uh, do the commemoration uh, in 1909, he had done his own history of Hannah Freeman. And what he did, it was fascinating, he didn't drive, right? And so what he did was he sent out letters. He would write letters. He was a genealogist of the furthest extent, and he traced all these families that had lived around where Hannah was that knew her and sent letters to them. And they were basically letters that were interview questions, a series of questions asking what they knew about Hannah, had they, and sent those out, and then people sent those back, you know, or some filled them out. And then you've got accounts of people who actually knew her, remember her when they were a child, and told stories about her. So a lot of different things came together. You said in your book that she was a, a doctor or a healer? A healer, yes. Well, I just, you know, um, again, in, in the 18th century, the professional 
professionalization of medicine, or what we would call a doctor, had varying degrees to it relative to when I say I'm going to the doctor now, I, I'm hoping to see some plaques on the wall that tell me that. And so she was somebody who um, had ethnobotanical -botan knowledge um, that she was called upon, and the Quaker neighbors knew this about her, that she was called in to uh, heal people, uh, that their children were sick. Uh, with fevers or coughs. This is not just Indian families. No, no, this, these were the Quakers. And now Quaker families knew that there were people, you know, English people also practicing medicine around them. Uh, but they called on her. And she made teas and she made things that brought down fevers and got rid of coughs. And, and uh, again, that's, uh, that's easily understood because we know that Native Americans in the Eastern Woodlands had a great uh, indigenous uh, uh, medicine cabinet. Um, everything from basic uh, aspirin that we use today comes from um, a tree bark, willow tree bark, that North American Indians used and Europeans encountered. So they have a lot of knowledge about medicine. So she knew things that helped and she was called upon to, and it worked. It was successful. What made her memorable enough that that historian would have sent letters around to people asking, do you remember her? And what was memorable about her that they remembered her? She was a myth. She was the last of her kind. That was, even, yeah, was, by that point. Was she the last Lenape who was living in the area when she died? No. Absolutely. There's a woman named Lydia Sharp. I mean, I don't know. I can't. I know, I know that there were families of Lenapes who stayed. They're still here today. Their descendants are still in the area today. But there, even, even the newspaper, I forget which newspaper, it was a Philadelphia, Philadelphia newspaper that reported a woman named Lydia Sharp, who was in her 90s, died in 1820-something, and she was called the last Lenape in the area. So she's dying 20 years after Hannah did. So I don't know, maybe every decade we can find another last Lenape dying. But it was a, it was a trope. It was a, a set of ideas. It was a framework that people who were living on lands where Native Americans used to be um, within a generation after them being moved. Now you have to think that this is the early 1800s, right? And the process of war with Indians is going on all the way till the 1890s. But in Pennsylvania, by the time you're in 1820, the, the, the idea of Native Americans and who they are is no threat. It's no immediate threat to them anymore. That threat has moved further west, right? So they begin the, this process of mythologizing um, Native Americans because now they're fascinated by them, the lore and the legend. So Hannah becomes a local colorful character that they sort of embrace. I mean, she becomes an artifact of Pennsylvania's Indian past after that past is no longer threatening. And so she gets embedded. And that's why, that's why uh, Albert Cook Myers was fascinated by her because she's, you know, she's, the, she's the artifact. She represents that William Penn's policy was kind and benevolent, and we took care of her to her last of her days. I don't mean to sound sarcastic, but it gets kind of <laughs> problematic. Was she the last of her family? Um, no. Well, that's another one. That's another unanswered avenue. Um, there were a couple of accounts that I couldn't substantiate enough that I didn't want to include them, that she possibly had two sons and a husband. But nothing I felt comfortable putting in there and writing about. I couldn't, you know, I couldn't find the end of it. If she had sons, you know, where they went, where they ended up, I have no knowledge. Are you able to go to the 
place where she lived and stand there and say, this is where Hannah lived? Yes. I mean, there are markers. Uh, there are markers. She was born in a cabin on Bennett's Run, uh, which is, I think, now part of the Longwood Gardens um, lands. In fact, uh, they are going to do, there's a marker of Hannah's birthplace, her cabin where she was born um, along that run. Uh, and there was a, um, I, I just had a few email communications, but there's a boulder there that marks her birthplace that they're going to actually move to a more prominent place at the entry to Longwood Gardens. And I think this, in mid-May, they're going to have some sort of uh, uh, celebration of this because I think it's important to do that. Um, the other markers that, um, you, you do know where she lived because she was living on the property of specific farmers. So, you know, but again, she lived different places. Um, she's also um, where, where the poorhouse was, uh, where her uh, cabin was that she lived. Those places are marked. Um, and the his local historical society can give you information. And you can look online even and find markers for those things. Did she think she owned the land she was living on? <laughs> well, it, yes. I mean, from her, from her perspective, um, I guess I, I do want to back up, though. I just thought of something. Uh, when you asked about is there anybody of her family left here, and I guess, again, we get into our thinking of our own heritage, right? And when we think of family, people being related to us, we think about um, who my direct grandmother was or grandfather was and who my children are. That, that's our family. But in, um, in many Native American worldviews, your family is, is a clan. So it's not just you, who your direct legacy is. So um, is Hannah's family still around here? If, you know, if there are people that are of Delaware descent uh, that are still living in the area, then I'd say yes, right? Um, now back up, what did, we, what did you just ask me about before that? Um, <laughs> oh, did she think she owned the land she oh, lived on? Oh, right, right. Um, well, there are a couple of accounts of people that knew her, right? Albert Cook Myers notes. And one of them that struck me, uh, several, well, there were several accounts that struck me. Um, they talked about how she was a very proud woman, almost arrogant. Um, and one of the uh, people that knew her, had seen her riding around on horseback as a child, said she, and it was a great quote, she rode up and down this river like she was the queen of the whole neighborhood. And it makes sense. It's like she knew that those, land belong, those lands belonged to the Brandywine clan. She would have known that. That would have been part of her heritage. It's what she grew up with and knew. So she knew that, um, and she also understood the idea that as long as she lived in that place, it belonged to her. So for her, it did. And the fact that every farmer that lived up and down that river, wherever she wanted to go, nobody ever stopped her. Nobody said, you can't, no, you can't plant corn here. No, you can't come and harvest apples here. No, you can't cross my... You know, nobody, there's no record of anybody stopping her from doing anything. And even when she was exiled for seven years with her family and came back, seven years is a long time, they let them come back and move right back where they had lived before. Why was she exiled? Um, it had to do with the Paxton Massacre. Um, 1750s, uh, the era leading up to the 1750s and then the time of the French and Indian War. It was an extremely, extremely violent time. And... It was a general time of Indian hating. Um, the idea that there, there were no good Indians or bad Indians from European or the settlers' perspective. Um, and there was warfare going on. Um, and so after the Paxton Massacre, in which you know, it was uh, the killing of a group of 
non-combatant Indians by the Scots-Irish up in Lancaster County, um, there were many moves, um, like the Quakers had groups of Native Americans that were moving to safer places, and they wanted them to move to New Jersey, go across the river, because the threat was so intense in, in Pennsylvania. And so I don't know whether um, local families encouraged Hannah and her family to move, um, or whether they did so voluntarily, but they, they went across the river um, and they lived in New Jersey for seven years among other Delaware people there. Did the Delawares ever convert to Christianity or become Quakers? Uh, no, no. And if somebody knows about that, I'd like to hear about it. It's that, that's the funny thing. Um, a second book is going to be working on that in, in some part, is that the Delawares have a really close relationship with Quakers historically, far beyond their living here. Um, and, the, and, the, and the Quakers also, by the time they get to the 1750s, they have a shift, right, in their roles uh, in governments, as governance as well. And they move away from these very public political roles they had taken into, um, they become uh, the, the Indian agents, right, for the colonial Pennsylvania government and later for the United States, which is a role that Quakers will play all the way into the 20th century in Indian country out west. But, and, the, and, the, and the Delawares were also always recalling what they called their ancient friendship with the Quakers. They saw themselves as very much coming from the same place. There's one... Uh, um, Gekelemekpachunk, who remarks in the 1780s, we've all, we always lived together with the Quakers. We were always friends, you know, like they keep trying to get them to remember that, you know, why can't we live together as friends there in western Pennsylvania, Ohio? But ultimately, uh, I don't know of any cases of which Delawares joined Quaker meetings um, however, what the Delawares did do is they became closely entwined with the Moravians who start in Pennsylvania and then in uh, Ohio, western Pennsylvania and Ohio and Indiana. A lot of Delawares convert to become part of the Moravians. Um, and then, uh, but the Quakers will go on to be missionaries for the Oneidos up in New York, uh, for the Shawnee out in Ohio, but not with the Delawares. So it's a, leaves those questions that historian keeps nagging about. You say in your book, the Scots-Irish settlers arrived in Pennsylvania with a reputation as a belligerent and violent people. Mm -hmm. did, did their arrival start friction that hadn't been there before? Uh, no, I wouldn't say that it started friction. It just kind of, uh, I call them the shock troops uh, for Quaker colonization because uh, I call them belligerent people because they themselves had been forced off their lands in England and, and removed to other places. So they were very much tuned in to having to fight border wars, having to fight to hold on to territory that belonged to them. So their coming to the colonies was in part their chance now to have their own lands. And when they first came here, again, the Quaker English thought they were sort of uh, not quite the right sort to be living close by. And so they began to funnel um, the colonial agents for the Pennsylvania government began to funnel the Scots-Irish settlers out to the borderlands because they thought they would be the good settlers to put between them and now a lot of hostile Native Americans, not just Delawares, but others, you know, in the 1750s. And, and so they did. That's where they moved out to that area. And they were, they were without, without any exception, 
Indian hating. They were very much into that the only good Indian is a dead Indian. Uh, they didn't care who the Quakers said, these are friendly Indians, these are our friends, don't harm them. They're the ones that will, you know, uh, commit the crimes of the Paxton Massacre. Was the uh, French and Indian War, uh, did it involve the, uh, the Delaware or the Quakers? Uh, yes, yeah, I mean, it involved everybody <laughs> in a sense. Um, it's, it starts out again as this contest between uh, what is the English border, you know, of their colonies and the French border of their colonies. And it's, con it's contested over basically the Appalachia Mountain boundary, which nobody's actually gone out and drawn a line, but you know how it is when empires want to fight, they're going to fight. Um, the Quakers were in, it, 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 it will be, like I said, the undoing of Quaker political power in the colony of Pennsylvania, because again, they have a peace policy, uh, pacifism, and so they are trying to avoid engaging in warfare, and people living in Pennsylvania want to be protected, right? Um, and so that's, they're gonna lose their political authority, their external political authority um, that way, so they're engaged in that. Um, the Delawares are also engaged too because both the English, uh, the English and the French are courting various Native American groups and most of the Delawares are in western Pennsylvania. Um, and so the, the French and the English are both getting various Native American groups to align themselves with their interests, either be with the French or be with the English. And again, there's no one Delaware group, so there's various leaders and sachems that, you know, are trying to make decisions that are best for their people. And most of the people in western Pennsylvania and eastern Ohio have been dealing with warfare and dispossession, and they're just trying to live someplace. So you have... Um, an older generation of Delaware leaders who are looking for neutrality, right? I mean, they are old friends with the English, and yet the French are the ones who are now offering much more consistent and better trade than the English do. So there are some sachems that are just trying to remain neutral. You also have a younger generation of Delaware men who are urging for warfare, who want to fight because they have, they are the ones now that are living with loss and dispossession and, and broken treaties and all that sort of thing. So they're challenging their, their leaders. They're, the Delawares are going through changes in this time too about how they're going to be politically organized. So it's, it, there's so many things going on during this period and the Delawares are engaged, but they do, they do despite the English interests uh, uh, and French interests, they largely remain neutral through that. How did Hannah Freeman manage to survive all that? <laughs> it's pretty amazing. Um, well, like I said, she was exiled. I mean, for the part during the French and Indian War, she's in New Jersey. New Jersey wasn't going through the same type of thing? Well, New, Jer was. New Jersey, again, it's, it's a little bit further removed, but yes, they were, I mean, they were raising military efforts too in the French and Indian War, because again, it's about defending English colonies. Um, but the, the uh, um, uh, New Jersey uh, colonial government had uh, its own system for protecting and recognizing what they considered the friendly, non-belligerent, non-combatant Indians. And they literally had to register with the colonial government. They had to come in and sign up and say, you know, I'm the father and these are so many children and we're, you know, we're not combatant and we're not on either side. So they actually had a system. Um, so it was, a, it was safer. It was safer for them to be in New Jersey than to be in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania was the border of the war zone. 
when the Revolutionary War came along, were the Delawares mostly gone by then, or, or did they get caught up in it? Yeah, no, the, the larger, well, they get involved in the Revolution only there in western Pennsylvania and Ohio. But the Delawares that are living here, again, um, I just, I, I only know about Hannah and some of their families around her. But uh, they, they did like most people did when war came to their country. I mean, uh, Hannah Freeman's working for, on different farms and with different families. I mean, by the 1770s, she comes back from exile in 1763. And after that's when you see a real shift uh, from, again, most of the Delawares are gone from southeastern Pennsylvania, right? So there are families here and there. So you see a real shift in her with her mother and her grandmother and her aunties um, are now working for wages and working on different farms because their subsistence, their way of subsisting, isn't available. So they have to work like other people do. They have their small gardens that take care of their own families, but they're also out uh, working on farms uh, and earning money and also, you know, exchanging for goods. And so the war comes to this place and. Uh, Hannah Freeman's uh, working on farms that are right near where the Battle of the Brandywine takes place. And like I, I create a scene where she possibly, she was working in one of the farms where the battle extended into. So she may have been there helping and doing just like she did any other time. Well, when most of the Delawares moved away and she was one of the few who remained, did she continue to live like an Indian or did she assimilate? Did she dress like <laughs> Europeans or have or were there other Europeans who did jobs like she did? That's that's an interesting question. Um, it's one that uh, being a specialist in Native American history and teaching Native American history is is what makes an Indian Indian and what makes them not an Indian anymore. And so um, it's like Hannah Freeman as far as I understand remained a Lenape Indian all of her life. And the way she remained a Lenape Indian is because that's how she identified herself. Um, she Although at one point you say she said she didn't remember the language anymore. Right, right. Well, you can see that, I mean, again, her, uh, it's after the uh, revolution, or after the um, exile, and they're coming back in 1763, she has her um, aunties, aunties die, her grandmother dies, her mother's not. So she's like losing the generation of people that she spoke most often her own language to. And so she's going through a period um, of when she's not speaking. She's speaking more with English people than her own. Um, but I also would tend to think that she, I mean, I know people who were born in other countries and grow old and they never lost that first language they knew. So I, w I would imagine that part of that was for the benefit of the interviewers too. You know, but uh, she spoke English and she spoke her own language. But uh, what made her Lenape was the fact that she didn't convert to Christianity. Um, she identified herself as Lenape. There's no doubt that she, she lived a world in which how she looked. She was probably dressing very much like her colonial neighbors. Um, not that she would have been walking around in what somebody would expect to see as Indian garb, you know, that, that isn't what makes her an Indian. It was how she identified herself. What would you want to ask her? <laughs> I, I don't know if I'd want to ask her anything specific as I just want her to tell me what it was like to see all the changes that went on around her. And I guess I'd want to know why she didn't leave, why she didn't go with the majority of her people. Cause that must have been a very difficult choice, you know, and, and whether or not that was a choice that was made for her um, by other people, by her family, um, or whether it was some other decision that was made by her community. Um, 
I don't know. But I think I just, it was like we were discussing a little earlier about oral histories. I think I might have a question or two and then I'd hope she'd just talk to me, you know, but yeah. Uh, how long did she live? Um, probably into her 70s. It, again, she died in 1802, at three, and then um, if she was born in 1720s, 1730s, she's in her 70s. She's in her well, 70s. What was it about this book that took 10 years to write? <laughs> oh, that's a good question. Um, well, I'm a, um, I'm a late bloomer. <laughs> I decided to go to graduate school, and I got my Ph.D. when I turned 50. Um, so at the time that I was doing this, I was living in California. Um, I had three children, and I was a single mom. So my opportunities to get to Pennsylvania to do the research, um, and also the fact that um, when I had completed my dissertation in 2003, um, I had the dissertation had much more built around it that has to do with the broader Lenape history in Pennsylvania and not Hannah Freeman. Uh, and it was the publisher who, uh, who uh, the editor, when he reviewed the book, he was the one that said to me, he said, you know, he said, there are parts of this dissertation that sound just like this historian and you're doing all this arguing, but the chapters that you write about Hannah, it's like your, your voice comes through, the story's alive. And he said, can't you go back and do more research to find out about Hannah? And so I knew it. When he said it, I knew it because I knew that's the, that those were the parts that I felt most comfortable writing was when I wrote about Hannah. So uh, rather than taking a, a year or two to turn a dissertation into a published book, I stopped and I went back and I did more research and then I rewrote the whole thing. And it's all, it was all about Hannah at that point. So that and, and taking multiple jobs and, and then finally moving to Indiana in 2007. What's your day job now? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm an I just got tenure. I'm an associate professor at Purdue University in the history department. And you mentioned partway through this interview that there was a second book that you were working on. <laughs> yeah, well, I have two books I'm working on. One, one started a while ago that will be finished first, and it's about indigenous filmmakers. Um, yeah, it's called The Red Carpet. Uh, I used to be a film critic in California for a short while. And so I was approached by a publisher if I would write a book about modern Native American filmmakers because there's so many more of them now telling their own stories. So that's one project. But the project that brings me back to what I love to do, again, is a very 18th, uh, late 18th century book. It's called The Sons of Peace. Um, and basically it it uh, is situated in... Western Pennsylvania and Ohio, and, and I'm looking at this relationship again, this diplomatic, historic relationship between the Delawares and the Quakers that carries on. Well, we are out of time. We've been speaking with Dawn Marsh. She is the author of this book, A Lenape Among the Quakers, The Life of Hannah Freeman. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.